So, Holy Spirit, ask that you would help us to apply those words to our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just one more time before I preach, I want to plug Men's Fraternity to the guys. It starts this Wednesday, a program designed to help us be better husbands or boyfriends, fathers, leaders, have more adventure in life. When we did it last time, tons of guys said it made a big difference in their life. They wish they'd had it when they were younger. So it meets weekly, uh, starting this Wednesday. Uh, it will meet for nine weeks this fall and then 10 weeks in winter and then done for the year. Jesse Rice and I will be teaching it Wednesday, starting this Wednesday, 6.30 in the morning or 7.30 at night, uh, whichever fits your schedule better, and encourage you guys to come and bring a friend. You don't have to sign up, uh, but it would help us to plan if we knew whether you were coming in the morning or the evening. So after the service, if you remember, please just let us know out there in the lobby which service you, uh, which uh, se- session you plan to come to, and uh, starts this Wednesday. So be there. Okay, that's all you're going to hear about that sermon. Two weeks ago, if you were here, you remember I started the sermon by playing the piano. Actually, just the scale, but for me, that's playing the piano. That's all I can do. Do you know I was so nervous that I was going to make a mistake that I almost didn't do that sermon illustration? In fact, I was so nervous that I spent a part of Saturday practicing the scales over and over again. Except I was embarrassed even to do that much, so I had to wait until my wife went out to do errands so I could practice alone. It's a weird little world in here, guys. You don't want to be in here. I I mean, what what was the worst that would have happened if I had made a mistake? Would you all have demanded that I be fired? Would, Would you have called me names like unmusical, untalented? He plays piano like a replacement ref refs? I mean, oh, I know. I wonder, do you ever worry about making a mistake, getting it wrong in some part of your life? Maybe as a parent, do you worry about getting it wrong as a parent or in your career? Or maybe it's a decision about school or work that, or something that you have to make, and it's just paralyzing you because you don't want to make the wrong decision. Do any of you ever worry about making a mistake in some part of your life? We're doing a sermon series about how Jesus revives a lot of things in our lives. Revive, he revives marriages, revives families, revives our faith in him, revives people out of poverty, revives a sense of joy and excitement in us. But one of the things that can kill revival cold, one of the big revival busters is our need to get things perfectly right and avoid making mistakes, stay between the lines. That kills revival because revival does not stay between the lines. If you look at Bible. And the very familiar story read, the Good Samaritan, I think is an example of that. Now, the main point of this story is that we should love and serve others. That's the main point. But I want to look at it from a different angle today. Because another way to look at this story is that revival was waiting to happen there by the side of the road. The wounded man was in need of reviving. In fact, he was revived. But the priest and the Levite pass him by and miss their chance to be part of God's revival. For two reasons, I think. Now, the text never says exactly why they pass him by, but the two most likely reasons why the priest and the Levite just pass on by, first, common sense. The road is clearly dangerous. One man has been mugged. Common sense says, just keep on moving. Nothing to see here, guys. Just keep on moving. But the second reason, a lot of scholars think, and I agree, that it was out of religious concern. You know, the the text says that the man looked dead, and according to their customs, if they came into contact with a dead body, they would be unclean. So to avoid being unclean, in other words, avoid making a mistake, 
and to just follow good, practical, common sense, they miss the opportunity to be part of God's revival of this man. In fact, you see the same attitude in the whole story, throughout the whole story. The lawyer at the beginning, the expert in the law, who starts the whole thing with his questions. When Jesus says, love God and love your neighbor, what does the lawyer say? The text says he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He's trying to limit the definition of neighbor, lower the bar so that he can clear it, so that he will be right, so that he will be justified, so that he won't have been caught making a mistake. It's like when I was teaching, you know, I'd be up there lecturing away, saying amazing things, really life-changing, profound things, and some student would ask the most demoralizing question ever. Is this going to be on the test? You know, in other words, do I have to pay attention? Because, you know, if I do, I will, because I don't want to get it wrong on the test. But that's, that's the expert in the law. His goal is just not make a mistake. In fact, you even see that in the next story that follows the Good Samaritan, where Jesus shows up at the house of Mary and Martha. And if you remember that story, what's going on there? Mary listens to Jesus' teaching, but Martha is in the kitchen being busy trying to be the perfect hostess. In other words, revival... Jesus, God in the flesh, is sitting in her living room and she misses it because she's afraid to get the hostess thing wrong. And she's doing just what common sense says to do. This whole chunk of Luke is actually about how we squelch revival with our need to just, too, with our, when we get too focused on not getting it wrong, on staying between the lines, you know, just doing what makes practical common sense. And I think this is applicable to the east side because I think we see this in all kinds of ways in our lives. For instance, let's take parenting. My kids are 13, 9, 11. I am in the middle of it right now. And there is a ton of pressure here on the east side to be the perfect parent and make sure our kids have the perfect experiences they need so that they can live their perfect little lives. And so that means they need to get a 4.0 GPA so they can get into a good college, right? And then they have to have lots of activities, music, sports, drama, taekwondo, ancient Sanskrit, puppeteering lessons, right? What if they're the only kid at school that can't work a puppet, right? And we want all of this so that they can become, quote, well-rounded, which is just a synonym for having all your edges ground down. And so instead of being parents and life coaches who show them Jesus' love, we become managers of our kids' opportunities. And our need, our fear of getting it wrong as a parent, our desire to make sure they have a good future, that can be good, but taken too far, it causes us to miss the life, the revival that comes just when we hang out and love our kids. Or maybe it's a decision we have to make where we just get paralyzed out of fear of making the wrong one. You know, I know a lot of single folks who can't make a commitment to marriage because they're afraid of getting it wrong. And so they, they create these lists of requirements for any future spouse that nobody could ever meet, right? Like they need to be this tall and blonde and drink hazelnut lattes and their favorite color has to be taupe. You know, I mean, just like this, oh my goodness, just find a spark and fan it till it flames, would you? I mean, just... Get married already. Come on. Faith is another area where the fear of getting it wrong chokes out all life. If we measure ourselves by how many sins we do, then we start doing sin management and miss the revival that happens by just getting closer to Jesus and letting his love change us. A while back, I was talking to someone who was new to our church, and he wanted to know the rules. And I said, what rules? And he said, well, you know, like during the singing, should I clap? Should I keep my hands to my side? Should I raise my hands? I said, yes. You know, all of those are good. And he said, well, what should I wear? I said, clothes. <laughs> we really prefer clothes here, you know, and any kind, as long as it's clothes, that's great, right? If we are too concerned with not making a religious mistake, 
or concerned with what others might think, and those two things are very closely related, right? we're not going to be free to experience Jesus. It just chokes the life out of revival when we live so buttoned up, so trying to control everything, just right down the middle. Chokes revival, the spirit of revival. Speaker named Gary Smalley talks about how one day he was at a church and he mentioned a study done at UCLA that said that people who receive 10 meaningful touches a day live longer, at which point he saw a husband turn to his wife and go, one, two, three, right? Some of the guys are like, what's wrong with that? That's, go to men's fraternity, you'll find out, right? I mean, that, you know, just kind of the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law. And that's kind of what happens when we live life so trying to control everything. We, it chokes the spirit of revival. And revival is fueled by the spirit. And the spirit is sometimes messy, untidy. He asks us to do things that are weird. Other people might go, that's not the right thing to do, right? And I think Jesus has so much more for us than just this buttoned up life. In fact, I think one of the things Jesus wants you to hear today, if nothing else, is this. You are freer than you think. You are freer than you think. And the reason that you are freer than you think is because God's purposes in your life are not fragile. You know, a lot of times, at least for me, I'm so concerned about not making a mistake and doing what makes practical sense because I worry that if I don't do that, if I, you know, if I don't do something perfectly or do what makes common sense, then things are going to fall apart and everything's going to go badly and, oh my goodness, what will people think? And we'll all just sort of you know, degenerate and I'll end up living in a trailer in Pasco and my kids will be hippies and, you know, all this. this I don't know how I get there, but I just get there, right? Sort of like a picture somebody sent me of a sign outside a veterinary clinic that said, it's all fun and games until somebody ends up in a cone. <laughs> That's just kind of our life, right? It's just this constant message from our, better be careful or you'll end up in a cone, right? Don't get it wrong. Or, you know, you, 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 it's like having your mother in your head all the time. You, know, you shoot your eye out with that BB gun, just this fear. Now, I am not saying that we should just go out and be irresponsible. What I am saying is that God's purposes for us are not that fragile, that we have to get everything just perfectly right, that we can't make any mistakes, right? God will give us what we need, supply what we need, in order to get his purposes accomplished. They are not fragile. Again, you can see this in the Good Samaritan. Now, the typical way of reading this story is that we're supposed to be like the Good Samaritan, and that's true. But another way to read it is the Good Samaritan is actually Jesus. In fact, it's been read this way for centuries. It's actually kind of clear when you look at it. The Samaritan saves a dying man through his sacrifice, just like Jesus saves us. The oil and the wine he uses to pour on the wounds are religious images that point to the cross and to communion. The Samaritan says he's coming back, just like Jesus is coming back. Plus, this happens in the section of Luke where Jesus is headed to Jerusalem and the cross. Everything in this section points to the cross. The Samaritan is Jesus. You and I are actually two different people. First, we're the man on the side of the road. We've all been beaten up by life, and Jesus saves us. Second, we're the innkeeper. Right? The Samaritan brings the man to the innkeeper and says, take care of him, and I'll reimburse you. I'll give you what you need to do it. And then the innkeeper gets to be part of reviving this man. We're the innkeeper. And Jesus brings us opportunities to be part of his revival. And those opportunities can be scary, costly, risky, messy. They color outside the lines. They, they, they kind of break convention and social norms and make other people think we're weird or doing the wrong thing. But Jesus says, don't worry, I will supply you with what you need to get my purposes accomplished. And when we trust that, when we trust that, all hell breaks loose, literally. 
And then revival starts to happen because when we trust that God's purposes are not fragile, that frees us to do three things that lead to revival. And the first is this. When we trust God's purposes are not fragile, that frees us to embrace the unexpected. You know, a lot of times when we are praying for God to revive something, revive this marriage, revive my career, revive my finances or whatever it is, we have an idea of what that should look like and exactly how God should accomplish that, don't we? Right? God, I want you to revive this, and here's a 10-page memo detailing exactly how you should do that. But here's the thing. When God starts to revive things, it often, usually doesn't look the way we think it should. The priest and the Levite walk on by, miss their opportunity to be part of God's revival of this man because a man on the side of the road did not fit their paradigm of what revival should look like, of what God would do. But revival never fits our paradigm. It always starts in an unexpected way. Last week, I told you a story about a man who was able to overcome a very destructive addiction, but that started when he lost his job which gave him the opportunity to get closer to Jesus, and it was that that healed the addiction. Now, you wouldn't think that losing your job would lead to revival. Quite the opposite, right? But you see, God's purposes are not fragile. They can't be stopped by unemployment, or they can't be stopped by financial problems, or they can't be stopped by health problems. They can't be stopped. And often the unexpected, even the unwanted things, lead to revival. So we got to embrace the unexpected, because revival won't look the way we think it looks. Because when the Holy Spirit starts reviving things, crazy stuff starts to happen. And folks start coloring outside the lines. In the Bible, folks started speaking in tongues. There were healings. Jews and Gentiles who were sworn enemies started calling each other brother and sister in Christ. It was crazy. It was messy. It wasn't tidy. And oh, we don't like that. We like things to be mm, nice and controllable and tidy and between the lines. But revival doesn't work that way. Every Sunday morning, we pray for these services, and Rosalind, one of our pastors, she will often ask a question that makes me very nervous. I don't know if you knew that this question makes me nervous, but it does. She'll ask, what would we do if the Holy Spirit really broke out during worship? You know, like in the book of Acts. What, you know, what, if, what if tongues of fire actually came and rested on people's heads, like in the Bible? At one, one time, I said, I'd call the fire department. Right? And she said, oh, good, I'm glad someone knows the protocol. She's British. They love protocol, right? Revival doesn't fit into the protocol, so we have to embrace the unexpected. Second, revival happens when we take exciting risks, and we can do that if we know God's purposes aren't fragile. The Good Samaritan took a risk, and because of that, he got to be part of reviving this man. And this is one of the things I love about you as a church is that y'all are willing to take some risks. And I love that. You know, the Jubilee Reach Center, Eastside Academy, Housing at the Crossroads, Emerald Heights, all of those things involve risk. And all of those things are reviving folks out of poverty, out of loneliness, out of all kinds of things. Now, not every risk we've taken as a church has worked out, but that's okay, right? If we never fail as a church, that means we are failing because we are not out there on a limb taking risks for Jesus. And besides, God's purposes are not fragile. They can withstand a failure or two. And failure isn't fatal in God's kingdom. It's just directional. All of those failures, the ones that didn't work out, they taught us things. They helped us grow. They led us in different directions. You know, for me, this is very personal. I'm so glad you take risks because I am one of those risks you took. As you know, when I came here, I didn't have any experience at all. And when you as a church could have folded your arms and gone, well, this isn't going to work out and we'll see how long he lasts, you did the opposite. You said, this is great. He doesn't know what he's doing. (laughs) 
Only God would pick someone so incompetent, right? This, is, this has got to be God. And it was a risk for me to come here too. I mean, one of my lifelong mentors told me, wow, that job is, you could really fall flat on your face there. Thanks. Why are you my mentor? Fired. But for me, this job has brought all kinds of new life. It's revived me in all kinds of ways. Revival starts when we embrace the unexpected, take exciting risks, and finally revival happens when, as the Apostle Paul says in the book of Galatians, we walk by the Spirit. That is, if we follow the Spirit's nudging, even if it's scary, even if we might get it wrong, even if it's outside the lines, even if other people will say, that's not the right thing and you look weird, He will lead us toward revival. Well, how do I know if it's the Spirit nudging me or something else? I've said it before, but just a reminder. Three things. One, is it biblical? You know, I've had people say, God told me to have an affair. I said, no, he didn't. No, he didn't. Because in the Bible, God says to not do certain things because they're destructive and to do other things because they bring life. Is it biblical? Second, ask wise counsel of others. Third, trial and error. Because the more you respond to the nudges, the more you can figure out what the Holy Spirit sounds like and what he doesn't sound like. So if it's moral and biblical and you've got a nudge this week, just do it. Well, what if it isn't the Holy Spirit? Don't worry about it. What if I get it wrong? Just if it's moral and biblical, just try it out. And don't worry what other people might think. Jesus thinks you're great. You get that and you don't care what other people think. Besides, as I've told you before, when, whenever I go home on a Sunday and I'm stewing about how I could have done the sermon better, said this or said that, blah, 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 and I'm stewing on it, my wife always says, remember, Scott, nobody thinks about you as much as you think about you. <laughs> there is such freedom in that. Nobody thinks about you as much as you think about you. You are freer than you think. A while back, I was headed home to go work out on my elliptical machine, and I got one of those thoughts that seemed like it maybe it was the Holy Spirit, that said, work out at the gym instead. And I didn't want to do that. I was busy. That, you know, that, would, that would take more time. And what if I wasn't getting it right? What if it wasn't the Holy Spirit? I'd lose all that time, and I'm really busy. But it just wouldn't go away. So I ended up going. But when I got there, there was no parking at my gym, so I ended up having to park at Bellevue Square. And, and since I'd feel guilty parking at Bellevue Square, if I didn't buy something, I bought a cinnamon roll and then went to the gym to work out. <laughs> it all made perfect sense. The, Holy Spirit nudged me and I bought the cinnamon roll. Well, at the gym, I'm just like waiting for this life-changing encounter, right? Like God sent me to the gym and this amazing, nothing happened. Like total normal day at the gym, right? And I thought, well, I guess I got that wrong. Wasn't the Holy Spirit. But then as I was walking back through the mall to get to my car, I ran into a woman I hadn't talked to in a while. And our last conversation had been kind of tense because I'd made a decision she didn't agree with. And when I saw her, she said, I'm so glad I ran into you because I've been thinking about that last conversation and I, I just want to apologize. And I said, man, I want to apologize too. And, and we talked and we reconciled and the relationship was restored or you could say revived. By following that nudge, I experienced a little mini revival and I learned a little bit more what the Holy Spirit sounds like. Now, if that woman, ha- if I hadn't run into her, well then I would know what the Holy Spirit doesn't sound like. Failure isn't fatal, it's directional. Because God's purposes are not fragile, we can embrace the unexpected, we can take exciting risks, and we can walk by the Spirit. I have a friend who was having a lot of doubts in his faith, didn't know if Jesus was real or not, and so he decided to go on a mission trip to Cuba, thought that would help. But the group that he went with insisted on riding around the slums of Havana in an air-conditioned limousine. And then they would just pop out, pass out some tracts, and then ask people to become Christians. All of this made him very uncomfortable. 
Now, this church group, they had some reasons for all of that, some good reasons even. You know, folks weren't used to the heat, so the air-conditioned car helped them not get sunstroke. And there are diseases in those villages that Americans don't have immunity against. So, you know, they were just being prudent and practical, common sense when they said don't, don't interact. But they enforced these rules with vigor. This was not the kind of group where it was okay to make a mistake. Churches can be that way, unfortunately. Well, one day they went to a house where there was a six-year-old boy who had an eye disease that, uh, that was causing him to go blind. And my friend just felt this ton of compassion for this little boy. But everyone was saying, don't touch him. That disease could be contagious. Then we'd have to find medical treatment for you somewhere. You know, in Cuba, I'd be hard to do. Don't, don't, don't. But just kept getting this nudge from the Spirit and, and did, felt no fear about catching the disease. He says because it was God with him. So he went over, picked the little boy up, held him for a while, then he went, took, took him out of the house and started playing catch with him, and this little boy just lit up. I mean, it's just, his face was just so alive. Right? And, when, and my friend said that that, that that moment for him, he felt Jesus more than he'd ever felt in any other church service in his whole life. Now, it's just a little act, right? But here's a little boy who probably doesn't feel loved because people are avoiding him, who, and someone comes along and loves him enough to pick him up and care for him. And for my friend, it's, a, it's an experience of Jesus like he's never had before. And this is this tiny little act of service. In fact, it was such a powerful moment for my friend that when he got back, he started tutoring kids in under-resourced schools. And he loves doing it, loves being part of giving them an education that they need to get out of poverty. It just gives them all this joy. That one little moment with that kid completely revived his faith and revived in him a sense of purpose. But it started when he set aside his fear of making a mistake. He embraced the unexpected. I mean, who would have thought a six-year-old boy would lead to his revival? He took a risk. He did something that didn't make sense, ignored what other people were going to say, and he followed the Spirit, knowing that even if he got it wrong, even if he messed up, even if he got that eye disease, God's purposes are not fragile, and somehow God would use it for good. So where are you trying to control things? Hanging on, trying not to make a mistake, trying to be practical and prudent. And where is that crushing the spirit of revival? Is it in your parenting, career, some decision you've got to make, your faith life? Here is something you're never going to hear in church, okay? Here is your assignment this week. Go out and make a mistake. Okay, you're never going to hear that. Not a moral mistake. I'm not talking about a moral mistake. But go out, mess something up. Do color outside the lines. Make a mistake. Some of you are like, finally, something in church I can actually do. Right? Go. You are freer than you think. Embrace something unexpected. Take some risks and follow the Spirit, trusting that God's purposes for you are not fragile and that your mistakes are not carved in marble and your failures are not fatal and that as long as you are following Jesus, He will use even the hardest things for good and guide you to a new life. Because if God is for you, the God who made the universe, if He is for you and He is, then no weapon formed against you can remain. And nothing can derail his good purposes or the revival that he wants to do in you. You are freer than you think. So Jesus, help us to walk in that freedom. Lord, help us to follow what you say to do in those nudges in Scripture. Help us to walk there and not worry about what our culture says. Not worry about trying to stay between our cultural lines. But just follow you and we'll give you all the praise and the thanks for the revival that you do in all the different parts of our life. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.